With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Uh, welcome back, Y Whales. Today we have uh, a really interesting one because it's a merge of uh, both physical and blockchain. Uh, and that we're here with the, the team from Avado. But I'm going to let uh, Mr. Stefan uh, go ahead and kick this one off and introduce these guys. Yeah, sure. So I've known these guys. Uh, Baron lives in Zug as well. So I've kind of met him through just being, I guess, in the blockchain space. And he is one of like the original, oh, he's been involved with Ethereum for a long time. And so he has been super helpful for me and he's got a super cool product. And so I, I mentioned in the Y Whales chat and everyone was really interested. So I figured I want to want to get them in. And we had a super cool discussion a few days ago, actually, about what happens with the ETH merge. And so that's kind of what I wanted to bring these guys on. It seemed very timely and they've got a super cool product. Cool. Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Bernd. As Stefan mentioned, I live in Zook. Um, I moved here in 2014, just uh, from from Germany, from Frankfurt, and uh, not because of crypto, but I got into crypto then in 2015. Uh, interesting story, I'll tell it later if, if anyone is interested. And uh, yeah, that's me. I'm Bernd in Zug. Yeah, right. So uh, my name is Stefan. Um, I'm just visiting Bernd. I actually live in Belgium myself. Um, I've also been in the crypto space since like late 2015. Um, yeah, so we've known each other for uh, for all that time, I guess. Um, yeah, we're doing the Avado thing together, so that's me. Fabulous. So let's let's jump right into kind of the the first and foremost is what initially brought you guys into the blockchain. I mean, was it Bitcoin or you know what what kind of drew you guys into saying I want to be a professional, uh, you know, Web three type person? Go ahead. Yeah. So my. Um, so my background is in, in IT. So I, uh, I studied informatics in Antwerp in the, the university there. And then I started a company, a software company. And in 2015, we were working for the city of Antwerp. Um, and their people, so the, let's say the government uh, bodies, they, they wanted to uh, stimulate that people, so that their citizens basically, uh, were to be more self uh, um more autonomous, basically. So all the services that they provide to the citizens, they wanted to, to make it more like a sort of a self-service thing. Um, and then we were sort of uh, sort of a think tank that needed to like come up with new solutions. And then we bumped into uh, a project that's by coincidence runs on Ethereum. And then we said, yeah, we looked at Ethereum and it sort of ticked all the boxes of the things that we needed uh, to like make citizens more self-sovereign. Um, and then we started to like build all kinds of solutions and, and like demos and so forth, and then pitching them to to all the government agencies there, um, yeah, to make that work. So that's how I got into contact with uh, with blockchain. And then later on, we uh, we sort of split from the city of Antwerp because like it's like as you know, bureaucracy it goes very slow. Um, so we wanted to have like a more fast pace. Um, and then we started our own project with these uh, couple of people from the city of Antwerp. And that's how I met Berend uh, together with that group. And then we kicked off our own project into the block space. So that's how I rolled into it. So I haven't really been into Bitcoin. So my journey really started 
really at sort of when just when Ethereum got launched on launched their mainnet, that's sort of when, when I rolled in. So we were very early in like building all these smart contracts, doing experiments. Like the technology back in the, those days was really at a very uh, like primitive level. That tooling that exists today didn't exist uh, back then. So it was really uh, adventurous. I, I don't think anyone will ever look back and say that that you had a bad entry point into uh, Web three. So that's that's really, I mean, such foresight timing. Yeah. Uh, to look at Ethereum when a lot of people thought still that Bitcoin and everything else was a scam. Um, I mean, they still think that today in some cases. So um, that's fantastic. True. Wait, did Antwerp actually ever build anything? Like did Ant City of Antwerp actually launch anything or it was just kind of like a very early that never went anywhere? Well, so we, we sort of built what we call the tool belt. So there were all things like uh, like a sort of small community. Think of like you know, like a, a few blocks, uh, people that live on, on a certain block, they could like launch their own token. Uh, so when they did something good for it, like their local neighborhoods, uh, that they could actually like earn a coin and then like exchange value with a coin. So there's also, so the, the way that the city would support was they have some sort of affiliate, um, not really an affiliate, but sort of a, a bonus point. So if you do something good, like, um, uh, for example, yeah, you you go out to the library, then you also got like points that you can exchange to to get free access to museums that are normally to be paid for. So they would like stimulate healthy citizens and so forth. Uh, and those were also use cases that we could use on blockchain by by issuing coins. Now I don't know the, the current state of it because, as I said, we left it in the like end of 2016. Um, but I know there were like more like proof of concepts being rolled out. So, but I, I don't actually know what the status is right now. I think it's with like in a lot of cities, they do a lot of experimentations, but it doesn't really come to fruition because it's yeah, still, I think the user interface is just one of the big uh, barriers to entry. Like people, uh, you have to learn your citizens how to use uh, wallets and, and like set up wallets and accounts and so forth. So it's all uh, not very convenient yet. That's very, that's, that's so cool though, to think about, I mean, the thought of, of neighbors just having their own currency. Yeah, true. Yeah. Also just the fact that the city got involved that early, that's, that's, so is, is all of the country pretty forward thinking on crypto or is that was just a random coincidence that you guys got lucky, but just kind of shifted. Yeah, actually, I think we sort of took our liberty. Like I said, it was some sort of a think tank we were in. It was like very small group, like four people. Um, and we're just, we sort of, uh, got like a, a Catholic Blanche, as we say in, uh, in, in, uh, in our country. So yeah, we really got, we just introduced it. We were not asked like, oh, this is like Ethereum. Can you like figure out what it is? So it was really <laughs> the necessities of, of what the, the sort of the citizens need. How can we improve their life? And then we just stumbled upon Ethereum. And I think it's a very sort of, um, correct way to approach things. So a lot of companies and a lot of initiatives that you see, they say like, oh, we have blockchain. Can we sort of invent some problem around it so that we can uh, justify the use of blockchain? But there, I think it was really authentic. Like we're just looking for any technology. Um, and yeah, then that's just fits the, the whole uh, sort of narrative that we're looking for. Okay, so uh, my background is, is totally diverse. So I started off in professional sports, my first career. I worked for the NFL, actually, in, in Europe. And um, that was my longest career until now. It's 11 years I worked for the NFL. I was a scout and 
uh, search for young talents in Europe that could go to high school and then college and then NFL. They managed to get five players into the NFL, actually, five German players. So it was uh, pretty good. From, uh, but then this, this league closed, and then I went more into the digital space because it, it was more interesting to me. And uh, I worked for Deutsche Telekom, but that, that was almost the same like the city of Antwerp. It was very slow. They had processes. They didn't even care about the, the section that we worked in, even though we had a revenue of $100 million. That was just a rounding error in, in the $60 billion that the, that the Deutsche Telekom made. So they didn't change anything for us um, so I was really annoyed. After six years, I, I, I was happy that my wife got a job offer in Switzerland, and that's how I moved to Switzerland. So I just quit my job there. And um, the, the funny part is that uh, she had a job in Lucerne. That was, that was the, why we moved here. And I was thinking I probably will have a job in Zurich. So we chose the middle to, to find a spot to live in, and that's Zug. You know, Zug is like 30 minutes to Zurich and 30 minutes to Lucerne. So it's, it's really uh, convenient for both of us, or was back then. So um, then I, I started to look for a job, and I, I had a very diverse background, so nobody wanted me. <laughs> and um, I, I finally found a position uh, for online marketing with a, a startup that did uh, a, a fintech startup, you would call it. So I worked there, and I, I, I managed to get them, uh, convince them that um, they shouldn't do advertising. They should do something else. They should do um, uh, lending, peer-to-peer -peer lending as a business model because they had a lot of uh, users from banks and because you could combine all your bank accounts into one user interface. So you could use your, your credit card, your regular bank account, whatever, in one user interface and do interactions. So I convinced them to do a lending, a peer-to-peer -peer lending uh, solution. And when I presented it to the developers, it was in 2014, one of them took me aside and said, hey, what you're building is, is nice, but um, there's a protocol that, that covers that. It's called blockchain. Have you heard of that? And I was like, blockchain not? And he said, have you heard of, of Bitcoin? I said, yeah, I heard of Bitcoin, but um, I don't know what the difference is to my online banking because I, I can already send money from, from <laughs> you know, electronically. Yeah. Naively, as I thought. So um, then, then he explained it to me, and he said, "This is really a peer-to-peer -peer protocol that you can use to to transfer values, and it uh, doesn't need any middleman. Like the, the service you're, you're providing now is interesting, but it is really the middleman that's going to be replaced. And we see it in DeFi lending uh, today. You know, there's no no company doing it. It's a protocol. So it's it's really funny back then that uh, he explained it to me, and I was so hooked from that moment on." And uh, actually, this company, when I presented the solution, they said, that's that's great solution. We'll build it, but not with you. So I got uh, kicked out of the company. And uh, so I had to I had to find a new new occupation. I had to find something to, to work on. So I was going into, into blockchain then because it was interesting to me. And I, I was I was not a technical person. I'm not a math guru or something. So I'm, I'm just interested in, in the business um, behind it. So... I looked into the space and um, tried to find podcasts, which is, uh, back then it was a, there was nothing, really. You, you couldn't find anything. So I, I remember exactly what I found was the Futures Thinkers podcast. No, I don't know if you heard of that, but it's, it's a very, probably small, tiny podcast. But at least they had somebody on talking about blockchain, and it was Vitaly Buterin. He was, he was talking about his vision of the world computer. 
So he explained what what he thinks Bitcoin is missing and why he needs uh, this needs a, an upgrade. So you know, and it was in early 2015. So he already um, got people rallied behind this project, and he was already building it. But then it was the first time I heard about it. And um, the funny story is that he built an, a foundation in Zook. So his company, his setup was in Zook, just 15 minutes from where I lived. So I heard this podcast. I heard it. I, I searched the internet about this, um, yeah, organization and uh, found that they, they're just 15 minutes from where I lived. So I simply went there. I, I knocked on the door and, and somebody opened. It was <laughs> uh, a guy in, in, yeah, in, in a jumpsuit kind of, you know, uh, funny, funny people there uh, working there. And um, I just said, I, I don't know if I can help you guys, but I would love to, to be involved. Is there anything I can do for you? You know, and then um, since I was always involved in, in setting up organizations, uh, building businesses and so on, it was a good timing because the foundation was just created and they had a new, um, or they, they had the first um, uh, managing director and uh, Ming Chan, and she, and she was sort of struggling with all the, the, the things that, that had to be done. It was such a huge uh, organization already that they, they couldn't manage all the people. And so, so I helped her structure it a bit. And um, yeah, so that's how I came to it. And it was, it was really funny because I was sometimes sitting next to Vitalik. I never really spoke to him. It was really because he was on such a different level than I was. He was totally in, in this math and, and crypto space that I never, you know, even today is hard for me to understand. Um, but we, we sat next to each other sometimes and, and worked on, on things, but he worked on, on totally different things than I did. And um, so, but I, I was able to help them in a, in, a, in a field where they didn't have any expertise because they, they were all math and, and uh, crypto and developer gurus, uh, but didn't care about organizational structures and how to have a good run rate, uh, you know, and um, to, to, yeah, who to hire, who to fire and, and things like that, how to do this even. You know, so that that's that was my lucky moment, so to speak, to to get into that organization, and uh, they took me on the advisory board. Then, so I was sort of two years on the advisory board until 2017, and um, yeah, through the network that I built, because what they also did was they um, sort of everybody that or anybody that was interested in in this technology in Switzerland uh, contacted them. And they pointed it to, towards me. You explain it to them. You, you, you can uh, sort of adapt to it in, in their language. These were all business people, like insurance companies, banks, uh, all the uh, consulting companies. They all wanted to understand this technology. So I was together with a good friend of mine, Yesen, who's now with the NIR Foundation. Um, we were visiting all these, these companies and explaining what is Ethereum, what is blockchain, what is uh, cryptocurrency to them back in 2015. And uh, that's how I built my network. And from, from that point on, I, I yeah, met a lot of interesting people that, that were building stuff. And the most interesting project I found back then was uh, the, the project that Stefan was, was working on in, in Belgium. And they were looking for yeah, somebody that also, again, could help on the administrative side more, on the, on the business side. So that's how I, I joined this project. And uh, yeah, Stefan and I are still working together so it's, it was really fruitful what so so lots of lots of stories that we need to dive into a little bit <laughs> um because 
you know, there's so little on the history of, of Ethereum and really the history of the blockchain overall. Um, people talk about the coins and, and what they've done, but the, the building of the business, um, you know, the story that you just shared is, is not uncommon for tech startups. Um, they have a fabulous idea. They have a genius uh, genius founder that, that, that driving a team and no one thinks about how to pay the bills, how to market it, how to make sure that there's actually like able to be used by normal human beings. And, and so, um, you know, and clearly no one was thinking about gas prices back then because they're, they're still not now. And I'm, and as I'm watching, uh, it's at, at 1500 for slow is what, is what gas is at right now. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just, it's amazing to see from the technology from both of you guys kind of discovering it at the same moment. Um, and, and today, you know, it's, it's, it's changed the world. It will continue to change the world forever. ETH, ETH I believe will live on, you know, forever along with Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, looking back then, did you really think that this was going to be as big as Apple, as big as, you know, um, you know, IBM and some of these other ones? I mean, a half a trillion dollars right now yeah i think it will be way bigger this will really be a technology that's like the internet it's it's not a company it's like the internet so it's it's a technology that that everybody can use and will use or is using already but even in, in the small scale scale we we use it today this will be way way bigger because it, it allows for transfer of value through the internet and and that's that was missing on the internet itself so I think that's to me it's it's going to be way bigger than than now, and it's not a company; it's, it's like a country actually, because you you could see now this is a global country that has its own currency, you know, like the the, the world currency right now is is USD, but this could be easily re replaced by a, a non-government controlled currency. Uh, now I'm I'm preaching or it's like uh, no no this uh, is what we do all day long. Like what, what we can start talking about the fall of governments. Which one which one goes first? <laughs> um, no. Wait, I'm curious though. Did you when you knocked on their door? Did you like kind of like were you like holy shit? This is going to change everything? Or were you more like oh this sounds kind of cool? I should go knock on their door. Like what was like when you like what was the team's expectation? Like, did everyone there, like, did they know where it was going? Was it much more of like, I don't know, this looks kind of cool. Like, let's keep some doing some of that. Like, yeah. what was, like, early on, how was it? No, they, they, they didn't see it uh, that way. Because I see people now that, that were involved back in the days, they're, they're still astonished of, of what, what came to them, what, <laughs> what happened to them, you know. So it was definitely unforeseeable for, for the people. It was just that they, they saw something they could change. And they, they, they even saw that it's, it's, it was more like we need to change Bitcoin because we like Bitcoin, but it has so many downsides yet. You know, it's not programmable. You cannot build anything on top of it and stuff like that. So those, this was the motivation to improve something they already liked, but um, and not to change the world. Maybe, maybe that, yeah, it's, they, they already had sort of the vision of, this could change the world, but it was more like, yeah, we can do this. We we have the knowledge. We have uh, we are cre creative. We we know or at least have an idea of, of what we could change. You know, let's let's do it. Let's see how it works. And it's it's totally iterative. So it's it's not it's not like they they had the vision and now they're building it and it will be in five years it will be done like they they envisioned it. No, that's that's not going to happen. So it's 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 totally 
uh, pivoting all the time. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> for me, like in the beginning, it was like all these fundamentals were being built. Now, what we saw very early on, that's, um, yeah, so the, the whole concept that you, that you sort of drop the monopoly of a government that creates uh, like uh, value. So like, that can create ba like basically issue currency that was so un unthought of and unheard of. Um, but like you see all the DeFi tools that are now being built and like the, the level of complexity that it is at right now, back in those days, it was yeah, really, if you look at the website back then, the Ethereum, it just like said it, uh, Ethereum, the world computer is like, oh, that's decentralized computing. That, that was basically the thing. Um, but just by building all these, yeah, these primitives, I think yeah, it was clear that, that this was something to come. Although in the beginning, that that vision was certainly not, uh, not as clear cut as it's right now. Now, what was for me appealing to to really start diving from like a technology uh, perspective, because like I'm really a tech guy, um, is that yeah? So the, the fact that you could start uh, building on these with these smart contracts, so. I usually have like these cycles, these technology cycles where you say like a technology has to be like 10 times better than the previous one before it will actually be replacing the, the old uh, technology. But here we came to a case where like this is something that, that wasn't possible before. And so it was really like it's pretty common that people say like the, the Internet, as we know it right now, like Web 2 was sort of the democratization of exchange of information. And now the Web 3 is like the democratization of the exchange of value. And so you really got something new in your hands, so totally like a new tool, like a kid getting like a new tool, like what are you gonna do with it? Um, and I think that led into this whole like DeFi experience as we have it today. So that was really uh, like inspiring to see that, that you just like the realization that you have like a whole new concept in your hands. Um, and I think for now, these, these DeFi tools, it's not about like improving like the, the existing financial system, but all these new things that, that just weren't possible before, like like flash loans, for example, like in, in traditional financial works, such a thing that doesn't exist, or at least it's not accessible for, for everybody. And like, it's really the, that democratization of exchange of value that's really taking place right now. And it's so inspiring to see. You know, it's... Uh... I love, I love hearing you guys who have been really like Ethereum is the start of internet, you know, kind of the internet computer and, and as, as Alex said, and, and now like, I really, as much as I want to keep going down the memory road and we'll probably pull a little bit over, um, here's two guys that really were there for the birth of Ethereum, you know, in your own, in your own ways, uh, that you kind of discovered it before it was really, uh, anything. Tell us what you're working on now. Yeah, so so actually the projects we we participated in showed us the the downsides or the the um, the, the parts that were still missing in the, in building on top of this this technology, and mostly what we are what we saw is that decentralization is is really really hard. It's actually not a feature; it's a bug. It's something you have to sort of overcome to to make it work because it's it's um, makes many things difficult more difficult than uh, if you have it centralized. But um, this whole technology is built on decentralization. So if, if you um, compare it to the internet itself, the internet also started very decentralized, but then um, internet service providers came into play that, that had sort of more power to run these nodes. 
And at the end, they they um, managed to the, the network. And since they're in one jurisdiction, they they uh, are driven or are, are under the control of the jurisdiction of the of the government. So now you have censorship on the internet, which in the beginning was not uh, the idea of it. You know, it was an, an open protocol. And uh, so we we also see that in in blockchain technology because it's it should be decentralized. But a lot of people are running it on centralized cloud services, like AWS, for example. So, and we we even use that so uh, in, in our projects because it was more convenient to run it on on DigitalOcean or, or something else. But um, if you think about it, this is this is the first step into centralization again, where you have bottlenecks that are centralized, and they can at some point control it or being they can shut down a network if they if they need to by a government. Yeah, so. Um, that's why we sort of uh, believe or wanted to, to build something that uh, keeps these networks decentralized. And the only thing that, that helps there is that if, if everybody would run a node. So if, if you run a node, this is your access point to a blockchain, and you can do your transaction through this access point to the blockchain. Nobody can stop you doing that. And um, but if you use a third party, then this third party has uh, control over that. They can stop you from from doing this interaction. So a lot of services that you you any a lot of wallets that you use today are still using a centralized uh, node or or point um, in their in their architecture. So um, we built uh, or we were part of a project that built uh, an interesting software that. Um, was able to uh, was a convenient user interface to to run a node. It was based on Ethereum first of all, so it was it was really made for Ethereum that more people run nodes at home. And when we presented this, we at, at uh, expos, then we always had a computer with us um, to to showcase it because it had to run on a computer. But actually, it was a software that anybody could use. And um, but every every time we showed this, people came up to our booth and and picked up this computer, were looking at it and said, "Wow, this is interesting." And we said, "No, it's the software." Yeah, but this is interesting, <laughs> you know. And, and since I'm a, a business guy, I said, "Yeah, okay, well, I can sell you this, you know, if you want to have it on a computer, which was not the the, the purpose, but uh, why not sell it as a package, you know, the software and the computer." So we, Stefan and I, sort of. We're a spin-off now of that of that project, created our own project, our own brand, used the software initially, but now also built more more around it and uh, sort of made more convenient, uh, made it even more convenient, um, and are selling it now on a specific computer because we also believe that it's important to have the a specific hardware that matches perfectly with the software. So it's more the Apple approach than the Android approach. That's how I like to explain it. So it's more like you, you know exactly what you, what you are using, what kind of CPUs, um, uh, memory, and, and uh, drive you have, the, the storage, uh, so that if the user has a problem, we can always look at at least the, the hardware that we, that we gave him to inspect that. Um, there's, there's many other parts, moving parts outside of our hardware, like the the access to the internet and so on, but uh, that makes it easier for us to to maintain the, the project. That's how we started. It was actually in, in 2018. So at the end of 2018, we started it, 
and we sold decentralization. So that's that's also an, an interesting part that we try to sell. This is a tool that uh, keeps your blockchain decentralized, but this is a very very small group of people that's interested in that. So um, today we're, we're selling stake at home. So now you can it's a, it's the same concept beneath it. We're, we're selling decentralization, but the motivation for people to buy it is they want to stake. Um, their cryptocurrency on a, on a blockchain, and they don't want to pay any fees to a third party that manages it for them, which is also a centralized service. And at the end, so um, we're, we're it's two purposes that we that we feed kind of is you earn 100% of the rewards from the staking, and you decentralize the network of your choice. So that's why we why we built this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, now it's... Hey, just for, for our audience, I'm curious. So, but, hey, in 2018, was Ethereum already proof of stake? Or it was still, I mean, it's still proof of work now, but what, like, what was it doing in 2018? Was it just like <laughs> a, basically a client? It was no staking involved yet. Yeah, no, so back in those days, it was just uh, like proof of work. So you could you could do two things. So either you run a miner, so like with the GPU cards, so like these mining rigs that you could run, uh, or you could also just run a validating node. And what a validating node is, it doesn't produce any new blocks, but it still holds a full copy of the of the whole state. So the, the full blockchain uh, historical data is stored on your hard disk. It's, it participates in it in all this peer-to-peer connection with all these other nodes, so it sort of makes the network more resilient. Um, and so we were sort of selling that aspect so that you can be part of the network. Uh, you're not going to earn anything because it's like proof of work and these, I mean, these computers that we sell, they don't have any like GPU cards, so you cannot mine like in proof of work uh, style of mining. Um, so you could like participate, like Ben said, it was like, decentralizing the, yeah, so selling the decentralization aspect, which yeah, at that point, like attracted a very small niche of people, which was sort of our initial uh, audience. Um, but if you sort of fast forward to today, so the staking solutions, um, so a lot of things haven't changed for the better in the sense that a lot of projects, like if you look at any blockchain that's like proof of stake, you think of like uh, Ethereum now or uh, Avalanche, uh, near even, like you have like a handful of blockchains that you can actually participate in. Uh, but the way you have to do it right now is you have to go to the website. Uh, you have to read through all that documentation, like pages and pages of, of setting, uh, how to set up your own node. Um, so they basically just sell or like provide software on their site. So they, they leave the end user sort of in the dark, like how can I actually participate now? Um, so it's very cumbersome for a user to actually read through all that. Uh, but then you also have to, like Bezan said, so we try to standardize that hardware. So we sort of did the research, like what kind of hardware do you actually need? What kind of disk? What's, what's the disk size that you need? What's the, the amount of memory that this needs? Uh, the, like the CPU power that it requires and so forth. Um, and that sort of was the result uh, that resulted in the hardware that we are currently offering. Um, and then we also did all the research, like how do we have to, like, we sort of read through all that documentation and we built like a ready to go package. And we sort of wrapped that uh, with a nice packaging, which is like a user interface. Um, yeah, to present it to our users because a lot of that software usually is just like command line stuff. And if there's anything that a lot of people hate is like to go into a command line and start typing all, of, all kind of discrete <laughs> commands. Uh, it's either because they don't have the technical knowledge or like it's, it's very, 
like a lot of people are just afraid to touch it, to do something wrong because you're actually like playing with your money. So you don't want anything to go wrong. So uh, it's more convenient if somebody holds your hand and just like projects like, uh, like all the rest of the internet and all these, these DeFi apps just with a graphical user interface. So, so for you, ETH 2.0 is, oh, go ahead, Jay. I was going to say, so, so we have here two of the very rare business people in blockchains that are actually some, somewhat concerned about the user experience. Um, and that's rare because clearly, like, the, on the other end of this is, like, MetaMask, who, like, I, it just doesn't care one bit, figure it out or don't. It's, it's the way it's going to be. And so, you know, to me, it's really the, the business problem that you guys are trying to solve is, is a huge one because... Um, and please correct me because I, I know I'm going to get the stat wrong, but I saw something that there's like an incredibly high percentage of Ethereum is actually running on AWS, like something like around 60% of, of, of Ethereum nodes are inside of, of Amazon Web Services. That, that's correct. I think it's even more, but uh, yes. So, that's kind of ironic. Yeah, well, well, I mean, so here's the problem is, I mean, we're launching, we, we've launched a, a marketplace and a, and a token, um, NFT and whatnot, and you guys are going to get one for being on the show, but you couldn't, you, there's no platform that can load our objects quick enough. Like if you click on it and you wait 90 seconds, people are going to be like, well, it's obviously broken. No, that's, that's what, you know, file, <laughs> file coin and all these other guys, it just takes, you put on AWS and it loads right like that. And there's always the plan. You'll move it later. But you're not invest. The problem is, is as you know, we're hearing right now, no one's investing in the systems today when they desperately need need the, the adoption. So, talk. Just talk me through. Like you, you've got one there. I saw you hold up, hold one up earlier. So, I'm a, I'm a retail guy. I, I this is one of the rare times there's a physical product. Yeah, look at that. So, <laughs> so just walk 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 us through like when someone opens this up. There, there's, you know, you talk through the, the, the theory behind it. What does it do? Like, what, what are the, the main points of, of what a user, when they open this and, and plug it into their system, can expect? So this is the device. So it's, it's um, not really big, but it's also not, not a small device. It weighs about uh, one and a half kilos. You know, it has a few ports that you can see. And it's, but actually, you just need power and internet. So you just connect the ethernet cable of your router in here and connected to the router, you, you put energy to it and it runs. And uh, then it has an, a Wi-Fi integrated, so you have two antennas that you put on and it creates its own Wi-Fi network. And that's how you connect to it. So you just take your own computer, your cell phone, whatever, you connect to the Wi-Fi that this um, produces and then you have access to the, to the user interface. It's like a website. But it's, the website is on the device itself, so it's not it's not propagated to to the internet itself. So and then then you have an, an app store, or like we call it a DApp store, because it should be decentralized applications. There's a DApp store that offers you any kind of of chain or whatever we we put on there. And so now we have Ethereum for staking, we have Avalanche for staking, we have Quantum for staking, and we have, but we also have Bitcoin, Monero, and other uh, clients on it. And you just search through what you want to have, you click install and then the machine spins it up. That's the magic that, that Stefan produces. You know, he, I'm not doing that. So it's it's really like you push a button and it says, yeah, I'm, I'm syncing now. And maybe it takes a day or two days because these chains are getting huge. You know, they need a lot of disk space. 
And um, so it uses your energy, it uses your bandwidth. That's that's the the, the, the cost you have, the running cost you will have. Um, other than that, this machine is, is quiet because it doesn't have any moving parts in it. So it's really meant to be in your living room because most of the routers are in the living room or somewhere near. Um, so it's, it's totally quiet, doesn't do, do any sounds, anything. And it's, it just runs. It's 24-7 on. You don't have to worry about it. It's... Um, yeah, you, you can check on it from any device, even externally. So we have a, a system on it that you can connect to it a remote and just check on the box, even if you're on holidays and, and see how it, how it works. So, so we, can, we can connect an entire Ethereum. So that's, this is an Ethereum node, not a, not a minor mode, but it's a validator mode. Yeah, so the, like the main difference is that this thing, since it's proof of stake, it doesn't like it doesn't uh, gobble up a lot of energy. Yeah? Like uh, mining, like in a traditional proof of work, mining is sort of converting electricity into consensus on a blockchain level. What this is is like you have to deposit your stake on it, and then it's your stake that is literally at stake yeah, for producing new blocks. But it means that this is very like energy efficient. So like the running cost for electricity is about like ten dollars or so a year for this because it just has a small like power outlet. So it just takes as much power as your router, so to speak. Um, how, so how much memory does it have? Yeah, it depends. Uh, so we have a model with sixteen gigabytes RAM and one with thirty-two gigabytes of RAM. This one comes with thirty-two, so it's. Uh, it could even be a 60, 64 is the max that we can put on this. So, so sixty four of RAM, and then what? What's the storage to hold Ethereum? Any of these chains on there? Yeah, do you have to plug a. Do you have to plug a flash drive in? Yeah, there's different ways you can be, can run the Ethereum chain. So there's the the regular one that we have on this, uh, or the, the sort of the default one is is called the Geth client that you would run, and it uh, right now it has a storage of about almost one terabyte. So this this device has comes with either two terabytes or four terabytes. We now even add one very soon for eight terabytes of disk space. So this is more future proof, let's say. Uh, even the two terabytes. So it's, uh, the one terabyte is now since since the the genesis of Ethereum until today is one terabyte. So it it should last maybe uh, two two and a half years. We we sort of expect. Uh, the the this this um, the storage to be available, and but if you want to be more future proof, you just buy the four terabyte or the eight terabyte. And the the good thing about this device is you can also run several chains on it. So because the the bandwidth is also not such a huge topic, we will not uh, you, you you can still watch Netflix um, you know <laughs> and stuff while this is syncing the blockchain. Um, so I have a device that is running Avalanche, Quantum, and uh, I don't know what, what else. So there's, there's several uh, chains on, on one device that it can run. It's, it's mainly the storage, or the yeah, the storage that is limiting the amount of, of chains you want to run. And then for validators, you have to understand you don't need more than one chain or geth client let's say for ethereum to run multiple validators so you can stake 32 eth or you can stake 320 eth if you have like 10 um, of these uh, validators running there's there's users that that said they have more than 100 validators running on, on one device so that's uh, it's a substantial good to be them they have somehow and they, they trust this machine to to manage that well so and it's not left and down yet. So, 
Hey, I just want to back out a little bit. So just for, for the people kind of listening. So, okay, what this device does effectively is it lets you stake your own Ethereum. So you can participate on consensus, right? And basically what you do is if you have 32 ETH, which is the, the amount required to have one node to stake, right? Effectively, I quote unquote, put my 32 ETH onto the device and then I become part of uh, effectively validating Ethereum and I get paid um, I get paid a fee, right? I get 7% right now on 7% per year. Yeah, something like that. It's, it's actually a little lower uh, these days. I think it's uh, around 5% or so. Uh, but it's true with like one small nuance that is that your the 32E that you deposit is not actually on the device that you deposited, but it's in it's in the deposit contract on chain. So that means that um, even if this device would be stolen or get hacked somehow, uh, people will not be able to sort of uh, withdraw your 32 ETH or whatever uh, the uh, uh, the amount of validators that you're running on there. So uh, that's a small nuance, but from a security point of view, it makes a, a big difference, of course. So if you've got a group of friends, you can you can it doesn't have to be all of yours because the wallets are still holding it on the contract. So you can have uh, a, like we've got you know uh, thousands of people around the world, and if we said we want to fire up a bunch of these all over the place. You know, everyone can stake their own to these nodes. Yeah, true, but it's always uh, so in, in because that's how the Ethereum protocol works. It's always in increments of thirty-two e. But what we can do, like I, there's enough trust between Barrett and I, uh, so if we would pull together thirty-two eats, and I would get like a chunk of that thirty-two eat, and and Barrett tops it up up to until thirty-two eat, and Barrett can stake on one machine, and then later on we can share the profits. So that could also work. It's a social trust tower, we call it. So it, it would be just friends uh, have to trust each other because then one, only one person, one pro, um, sort of key um, uh, deposits on chain. So it's, it's not that we can put together a smart contract that then deposits. So it's, it must be one, one transaction, one, one wallet. So, so it's really designed for single, single family homes where you kind of know everyone or really close drinking buddies. Yeah, yeah, true. Drinking buddies with a lot of ETH. <laughs> hey, the best kind to have. I'm about to say, that's right. It's okay, it's just it's for everyone. So you need 32 ETH. You cannot do it with two ETH. It, like, it doesn't work, right? It, you need actually around 32. Yeah, that's right. So the, the, the actual use case for this device is you need people that say, okay, I have the capital to stake myself and to run my own validator. And for those people, we actually provide a, a device or a solution that offers you in total a better yield than if you would, for example, stake on an exchange. And because if you stake on an exchange, then the exchange will take a cut of your of the of the rewards that you get. Um, as with this box, you it's just like one time purchase and then you you get to keep all these rewards that, that you that you're producing yourself by participating in proof of stake. And that means at the price point that Ether currently is, that means you just like amortize this, this device in a couple of months and then you just start like earning more. Um, of course, in, in the case of the exchange, you also get a certain reward. So it's about uh, like 10 to 12 months at current prices that, that there's sort of still a difference between staking on an exchange and staking yourself. But as we as we believe that staking is like a long-term game. I mean, you're not going to stake for like two months or three months. You're probably going to stake for multiple years uh, in a row. Um, 
yeah, that, that made it for, made it for us a no-brainer to say, yeah, we have to do this because it just makes more sense, um, not only from a financial perspective, but also from the decentralization that, that ethos, like we're like participating in decentralization. So not only do you have the problem like AWS, like everybody's putting like all the adjacent services around blockchain on centralized infrastructure, but if we're also going to send all our tokens to like one centralized place, like an exchange, to stake, like, how are we changing the world in that case? So it's sort of a, like partially like a financial incentive, but also sort of our support for decentralization. Yeah, that's a really cool point, because I think one of the things that's really interesting, especially with, and I, don't know, I listen to loads of podcasts, right? All the ETH maxi point is always like, oh, it's super decentralized, right? And I'm like, okay, but like with ETH 2.0, it's just all at exchanges. I mean, what percentage of Ethereum like is going to be directly staked by people? versus what giant percentage is going to end up being staked through the exchanges. So I love what you guys are doing from that perspective. And I feel like that topic of like, yeah, I agree ETH1 is very decentralized with proof of work, obviously, but I think as it shifts to ETH2, because I mean, by the way, what is the pricing? Because that's, I think, an interesting point, because I think one of the, a lot of things I keep hearing from Ethereum is like, oh, it's everyone can stake, right? It's very inexpensive, but the hardware requirements for ETH2 are actually reasonably substantial, right? I mean, it's not like a $50 device. No, so the, the device itself is uh, it comes either as a thousand six hundred um, dollars or a two thousand three hundred uh, USD. That is sort of the, the device we we recommend for staking on Ethereum. We have a device at thousand ninety nine, which has a lower CPU and, and less um, uh, storage. That is more for other chains like Avalanche. You can use it for for Quantum. You can use it for, or if you simply want to run a node on Bitcoin or any other. Chain. Or there's also um, services that we integrate that allow you to earn money just by renting out your, your bandwidth, for example. There's a VPN called Mysterium that you, you can download the package and you give people access to the internet through your internet at, um, point. So any, anybody from uh, Turkey that wants to look at Wikipedia could go to Mysterium and, and uh, use your endpoint to go to the internet in Switzerland where they can see Wikipedia because Wikipedia is censored in, in Turkey. Um, so that's that's another solution. And this is for the device that, that doesn't need that much storage, that doesn't have much uh, uh, yeah, processing power and so on. So, but, so yeah. and just, just real quick on the VPN, it's not exposing in any way your IP address. It's all mirrored in, in the cloud. So <clears throat> if I've got a building with a server room and gigabits of, of bandwidth I'm not using and just said, hey, I am I'm, I'm have no issue uh, being a VPN for others. It doesn't expose me in any way because it's all decentralized. Yeah, exactly. So th this protocol is called Mysterium and, and they created this solution. It still uses your endpoint, but it doesn't show your IP address or, or anything. So your internet service provider could ask you, there's so much bandwidth going on or, or taken, <laughs> what are you doing, you know, if, if they care about it? So that, that could be the only, only challenge. And you there's they have two services. I, I don't want to go too deep into the service because it's their own product, I, I, you know, it's uh, hard for me to, to explain their, their own product, but they have a whitelisted um, group of people that, that use the VPN that is uh, sort of sure that there is no, I don't know, uh, services used uh, that you don't want them to use. And then there's a not whitelisted uh, group of people 
So that's uh, there is a risk that you could take, but you can also just use the whitelisted group of people um, to access. No, it's fabulous. Thank you for taking the time to explain that one. Hey, yeah, I, and we had a really cool discussion a few days ago about kind of what happens when the merge happens. Because obviously, okay, this device becomes a lot more useful when the merge happens, right? I mean, right now it's really just the beacon chain and it doesn't really do the thing yet. I mean, it does obviously, but it's not quite the same. So walk us through what happens when the merge happens and what changes for you guys. Yes, yeah, so right now, as you pointed out, Stefan, it's, um, so right now we are only sort of getting the, the block subsidy. So um, every now and then you're Avado, if you're staking on, on, uh, on Ethereum right now, uh, it will produce a new block and you're like rewarded for that. And then in between the, when you're producing blocks, you are attesting other people that produce blocks. So you're sort of verifying other people's work and that also yields into a small, uh, much smaller reward. So all in all, like it, it sort of juggles along and you start earning eats, um, which is by the way, still locked. Yeah, so it's still before the merge, all, all the rewards in your 32 ETH, you cannot withdraw it yet. So that, that's also like part of the risk you're taking. Um, but what actually happens at, uh, at the time of the merge is that the whole like Ethereum one will sort of be docked into that um, beacon chain. So that means that all the transactions will actually be uh, sort of validated on that beacon chain. And what that changes is that right now, the all the fees like the transactions fees for all the transactions um that go to the proof of work miners today will go to the proof of stake uh, validators and that's like a huge change because now um you get these block subsidies but after the merge you will get these block subsidies plus all the transaction fees and as you know there were like recently like some blocks with uh, due to these ha high gas prices and probably also some people fat fingering. There were sometimes blocks. Uh, there was one block, for example, um, not so so long ago that had like 99 ETH as fees, like transaction fees in it. So imagine mining a block that has like a block reward of 90, uh, 99 ETH in uh, in gas fees. So that's huge. <laughs> Um, so that's one big change. So that's sort of that's increased. So there's like another chunk of rewards being added to uh, what you're doing as a validator. Uh, a second observation is that so the merge itself will not solve like the scaling problem sort of or like the congestion that Ethereum currently has. And so as you know, the congestion on Ethereum causes these gas fees to spike and like causing people to pay a lot of money for including their transaction into a block. Now, so interestingly enough, so the merge doesn't solve that. It's only later when all these roll-ups and these sharding aspects come, come to life, which is like scheduled in later stages of Ethereum. But in between uh, that time, so after the merge and before the actual Ethereum scaling comes to fruition, uh, we'll probably be stuck with high gas prices. And so these high gas prices are very beneficial to proof-of-stake uh, proof validators because they will like capture all these fees. So that's like, that's super interesting. Um, I think the Wait, does the merge not increase block space at all? I thought the merge did have an impact on just because obviously with proof of work, I mean, there's just kind of inherent slowness because somebody needs to find the next block. So does proof of, uh, does the proof of stake switch not speed that up at all? Or is there, is there like no scaling benefit? I thought there was some. Yeah, so the the thing is, it doesn't really matter how it's how it's uh, done because the like the rate in which you can like include uh, transactions in a block, like in total, it, it will sort of stay the same. So that means that that 
that pressure to like keep his, his gas prices pretty high uh, will stay the same. So uh, I think there's not a lot that, that will change into uh, on that uh, that front. Sorry. Interesting. So staking becomes a lot more interesting because suddenly, A, it's not locked in anymore after the merge either. Because right now, if I put my 32 ETH in, I can't get it out till the merge. Yeah, that's right. And so yeah, it's also speculation, of course, what will happen. But um, so the thing is, some people, they expect when the merge comes there, and so people will be able to withdraw their stake, yeah, their 32 ETH, including their, like all the rewards that they've been aggregating for the last year. Um, that they might like withdraw it a little, dump it on the markets, and then like the price of Ethereum could tank uh, during the merge. But actually, there's a good case to be made that like the opposite will actually happen because uh, imagine that I'm uh, a validator, I'm actually validating myself, of course, on, on the chain. Um, at the time that the merge comes, I sort of know that I will get more rewards than I'm currently getting. So that APY from, for Ethereum will like will certainly go up. So I would be crazy to like when the merge happens, all of a sudden like stop validating and like dump all my, my coins on the market. So it doesn't make any sense, certainly because I'm in there for sort of for the long haul. Um, so yeah, I don't expect a lot of people to actually withdraw their eat. So I think that the potential dump that might happen might just not happen. And maybe the <laughs> other way around, like people, when they see like, oh, these APYs are like going up and going up significantly. Uh, that they might actually take the step to say, yeah, I want to have like, I want to have a chunk of that. So I want to participate. So it could even be, like I said, the inverse that people are actually spinning up more validators post merge. Yeah, I, I really like that about the merge, just in general, like philosophically too. Where right now, the people who are mining Ethereum are not necessarily the people who own Ethereum, right? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of miners that also then like just keep their their, their whatever the Ethereum they mine, but like. So many people have Ethereum and they don't mind because it's, I mean, it's a totally different skill set to build giant warehouses with GPUs in it, right? So it kind of feels like it gives that power of back to kind of more of the people who are actually participating. So mm -hmm. I think that's super cool. And now the big key part is right now all those, the crazy fees that Jay was talking about for $1,500, at least that's coming back to people who have Ethereum versus going to miners, right? So at least it's kind of going back to the community or at least a larger part of the community. I'm guessing like the miners are part of the community, but at least it's like kind of everyone who has Ethereum can stake now and get part of those giant fees at least. Yeah, so the, the interesting part also about like the difference between proof of work mining and proof of stake mining is that's proof of work miners, they constantly need to sort of offload some of the coins that they're that they mining to pay for their operations because they have like ongoing electricity costs and so forth, so like the, the running, uh, the running cost of, of proof of work is like very high for who participates in that. And that's totally different from a proof of stake, uh, like a validator, because the only thing which is required is like this that upfront capital, like the running cost for keeping a proof of, um, a proof of stake validator running is like super low. Like I said, it's like five dollars uh, or like uh, let's say ten dollars a year in uh, electricity costs, and you just connect it to your home router, so and that's already paid for. So like, it's it literally almost costs you nothing to uh, to keep on staking, and there's a very big difference with proof of work. Yeah, they're, 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 I'm, I'm biting my tongue here because I'm I'm the furthest thing from an ETH maxi. So, <clears throat> um, and it's not that I don't believe ETH is is going to be here forever, 
Um, I just look at it's, as you said, the gas problems are going to continue to get worse. Um, and I think there's some very interesting technology that's solved some of those problems and is making, you know, clear headway in a very, very fast way, which is why I, I absolutely love, <laughs> love this product. And I'm sitting here because you, you've, you've hedged your bets across multiple chains. You know, if you're an eighth maxi, go for it. Absolutely. Run five, six, seven of them. Nobody cares. If you want dot, if you want avalanche, if you want whatever the case is. And that, that to me is why it's a, this is interesting is um, years ago, there was uh, prior to Dropbox, you could, there was a device I bought that you could hook and basically run your own little uh, server from your house. And you could get your files from anywhere and everywhere conveniently, and you didn't have to pay for the bandwidth you already had. And to me, this is, this is taking that to the next level because now it's saying I bought the currencies. I'm self-custodying. I am, I, now I want, instead of having to go trust a third party or trust a, another protocol, um, this is just running on my house, running at home at my house. And if the house burns down, that's cool because I still have access uh, to that protocol and access to everything there. So um, it's a really, really interesting pro project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. Even yeah, I thought the timing was super cool too. So when we were talking, right, I think just the like, yeah, I want to have dive into quickly, like why is the timing pretty crucial right now? Because, okay, so as soon as ETH 2.0 goes live, depending on what happens to the fees, obviously, but chances are your product's going to be – so, okay, you're probably very excited for ETH2, right? Because the demand for your product is going to go up a lot, is just my guess, for based on if ETH staking become – right now it's kind of a hesitance of like, well, do I really want to lock in 32 ETH? We don't really know what the date what the date of release for ETH2 is yet, so it's kind of this like up in the air. But so you're probably pretty psyched. And then so how do you see that merge going and how do you see everyone coming online and impacting your business? The interesting part is also that um, right now, and I, I, I'm not sure if it will change post-merge. I, I think it won't. But so there's this concept of like a validator queue. So if you want to be part of, of the validator pool, uh, you have to sort of, you have to do your deposit and then you're like, could it turn into a queue, uh, like a waiting list, because each day there are only so many uh, new validators that the protocol allows to be to come online. Uh, so the interesting part there is that um, if if that's um, that concept that I just talked about, like yeah, there might be more uh, because because it comes financially more attractive to be a staker. That a lot of people will say, yeah, all that eat that I'm sitting here in this wallet, why why put it to work? These APYs are like going up, so let's take the step to do it, uh, you might end up in that queue. And so if you looked at the queue, for example, before uh, Ethereum launched, then you had like, you could only do the deposit. And I think it was last year, uh, the 1st of December, that they actually launched the proof of stake. Uh, there was like a huge queue. So if you wanted to be part of that, some people had to wait like for a week or something or even longer uh, for their validator to, to be activated. So if a lot of new uh, validators come online post-merge. Uh, if you're not in time, you might uh, end up <laughs> waiting quite a while and missing out on, on nice APYs. So that's... Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's probably kind of like a lot of these things, right? That first few days is when the APYs are going to be wild, right? Because if it takes people a while to get set up, like that that short period of time, I mean, that's what we see in DeFi, right? Like when something launches like 7 million percent APY, right? And I'm sure Ethereum won't be that, right? Because... I mean, there's no way, but even realistically, it might be really, really strong APYs for at least a short period of time. But so 
that's when we were talking. I'm like, oh, shit, this is really cool. I got to bring this to the group because now is kind of the time to get ready for this, right? Because if you have this, you have it set up, you're running. Um, who knows? On how, and again, obviously, it could also just be that we're wrong and the fees are just going to lower themselves. But I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of with you guys, I think, at least for a while. Because, okay, so it's like the fees go to the people who are staking, Right. And so right now, how much is staked? I think we did the math. It's like $5 billion of value or something. Yeah, it's just over 1 million ETH. So that's about 5 million, uh, 5 billion, sorry, of value. And, and... So only like 1% of ETH is staked right now because the market cap is like 500 billion, right? Yeah, it's less than, than one ETH, uh, 1%. Sorry. Yeah. But so I, so I think the interesting part there is, right, just assuming that not a whole bunch more people start staking, basically the entire fees go to that 1% of people who are staked. Not 1%, 1% of tokens, uh, of coins, I guess, that are staked, yeah. right? So it's going to be really interesting to see. And then obviously, if the APIs are nuts, then everyone's going to start staking. But as you're saying with the wait list, like who knows how long it takes them to come online. But I mean, the assumption will be that in the long run, that 1% turns into 20, 30, 40%, right? A lot more people are going to start staking as soon as the APYs go up and as soon as you can unstake. I think that's probably the more bigger hurdle right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it, well, what might also be an interesting metric is like how many uh, validators, so like people that are actually running validators actually uh, exist on the network because obviously you could have people that like if 100 validators running on one box, so, so it's... So the, the amount of validators, so if you sort of divided 1 million by 32, you would say like, oh, there's like so many people validating. That's not actually the truth because if like one, one guy is like staking five validators or 10 or even 100 validators, it sort of smalls down that number. But it's uh, without question that the number of actual like physical validators will, will rise uh, tremendously over the, the next like six, six to 12 months. Yeah. It's very exciting for us. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> so, um, all right. So let's, let's go ahead and, and take a, a half second where we've just had an hour recording. <clears throat> so we can take a, take a little breather. Um, you can, you can put the box down. We've, we've talked about the products. Um, we can now in the same sense, uh, it, was there anything we missed about the products that you wanted to, uh, you want to throw out there? Well, we spoke a lot of, of, about Ethereum. Uh, I think it's, it's, I don't know if we covered enough that there's a lot of other opportunities existing now, but also there's the opportunity for any other project to join us and, and get into the Dev Store. That's sort of an interesting part. That um, So the, the community we have, so every, every box that, that's out there, is constantly getting new updates if, if there's new projects coming into the Dev Store. So the Dev Store is like your App Store on the phone. It's, um, you know, we can add anything to it or anybody can add, add uh, their project to it because we have an SDK that anybody can build their own package that fits on the Avado. And um, immediately the, the whole community can use the product. So if you need, an onboarding process for your community. If you need new users, for example, your new product, it's pretty easy because you, you can spread it to our users. And it, especially if it's sort of incentivized, you know, that uh, just by running it or by providing uh, something for it, like bandwidth or CPU power or memory storage, whatever, 
you know, that the hardware gives, or even just uh, running it to for other users to new, to use it like a node, um, it immediately has a community that that can use that, and uh, so that, that's that's great, and it it grows uh, exponentially. If, if more projects come, they will bring their own community. More people will come, and the next project will have even more people that they can can sort of present their project to. So I think that's that's also an interesting part to to uh, yeah remember. So, so really, you've done your best to, to future-proof this and make sure that it's you're not buying a new box every year um, as new protocols and, and everything else get released. Exactly, yeah. So you, you just uh, see whatever new protocol comes out and, and people or the community suggests projects to us. We reach out to the project and, and see if they're interested in supporting us technology-wise because we, we, you know, we don't know all the technologies inside out. Um, but also financially, sometimes we, we ask for grants to, to get this in, uh, developed. And, but also the maintenance is a cost factor. So, so we, want, we maintain all these packages so that users always have the latest version on, on their box that they can use. So that's, that's a very convenient factor for your user so that you, you don't have to worry about any upgrades like uh, on, on these chains, but also any other project. You know, if they have an upgrade, if they they move to a new version, you don't have to worry about it because it's it's integrated, it's it's uh, updated automatically. Awesome. Um, well, and again, I, I love the product. I'm I'm going to be ordering one here shortly. And and in full disclosure, I don't own one today, um, but we'll we'll get to that. <laughs> but but now while we have you guys, and we have two, you know, again, real futurists because you guys were so early into this. Let's just talk. You know, if, if you have a few minutes of time. Where do you? What do you guys are excited about today? What What are the projects that exist today that you guys are following closely that you really are just like, you know, thinking this is new, this is cool, this is this is really going to change the world. I think the, the right now we see a lot of projects in DeFi that that's really really interesting in this technology. And it, uh, as Stefan explained before, there's things that you couldn't do before because it's it's sort of a protocol that does things for you and. Um, a combination of things that that uh, in the financial world that that uh, you know most people don't even understand how they work, but now they 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 create value. Um, that's that's really really interesting. I think that to me is is the most interesting part right now. Um, there's also NFTs, but that's to me a different section. Um, I think that also the the NFT space has a lot of uh, interesting aspects. We use an NFT uh, for the device as a as the warranty, for example, because it has a timestamp of your of your of when you buy the device. It has the information about the device, so we don't even have to know you as a user. You can just uh, show the NFT or sign a transaction with the NFT behind, and we know the information. We can say, yeah, the, the warranty is still valid or not, and we can sort of work on that. So that's that's a different way of using an NFT in, in our case. So we. We will iterate on, on NFTs uh, in our own project because we, we still think there's a lot of potential in NFTs. We, we already created a token drop based on, on an NFT. So that we said uh, a new protocol that we added to Quantum gave us a certain amount of tokens, but we only wanted to give it to people that, that run an Avada node. And uh, so we based it on the NFT. So it was simply... Um, given to users that, that uh, sign a transaction with the NFT. 
So yeah, no, I, I I completely wholeheartedly agree that NFTs are in their absolute infancy right now for what what's capable because um, we utilize them, and again, you'll you'll see them here shortly. Uh, essentially, there's mobile smart contracts that can move around uh, the blockchain. And, you know, very, very easily trackable, very easy, verifiable. So that's the first I've heard about using it for warranty. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because there are like so many things around DeFi that people don't realize, but that just needs general computing. Like if you want to bridge tokens from one chain to the other, right, which is like the common practice in, in DeFi, uh, like few people realize that there's also like, just software like server software running uh, to sort of enable these bridges because they're like sort of signatures tokens that have to be locked on one side, but then information has to go to the other side, so the other chain, so so they can be unlocked over there or, or minted over there. Um, and that's also like it's sort of a group of people, and so with the emergence of these DAOs, um, it be it will become possible that that people actually sort of join into that DAO to provide that service for like maintaining a bridge, for example, because maintaining a bridge or, or price oracles, those kind of things, it's all generic computing. Uh, and now it's usually all these projects. So projects that, that build like layer two solutions, they provide these bridges themselves. Uh, but again, that's also some sort of a trust factor because you have to trust that these bridges keep, uh, somebody keeps those bridges online because otherwise you could be stuck with your tokens on one chain if you want to move to another chain. Um, so that's clearly still an issue. So I expect that, like, with the concept of DAOs, that, that this can really be sort of outsourced to people that sort of that could have a stake and that stake and that membership of that DAO could be manifested as an NFT. And so you can actually earn rewards because obviously there's a fee for, for transacting and, and, like, crossing a bridge from one chain to the other. Uh, and that could very easily be sort of spread out those uh, to all the participants on that sort of collaboratively um, maintain a bridge from one uh, from one chain to the other, and then sort of also uh, share those profits. And we also think that the Avado has a role in that uh, to either be uh, like a provider of a bridge, so we could build a package that runs bridge software, and then you could participate somehow according to the rules of that DAO, that specific project. Maybe you also have to like put in a stake or whatever. So like the 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 ways that that could work are just up to your imagination. Um, but you could also so it's like the power of having a generic computer platform in your home where you can like give your small contribution to the blockchain. So it's not only running stuff on chain by running a, a blockchain node, but also being able to run these like adjacent services in a distributed way at home. Um, and so interestingly enough, we are sort of applying this system also to ourselves um, in the sense that we are also experimenting now with the concept of like creating a DAO, uh, where sort of the NFT on um, the Avada would also be sort of your entry tickets to be, uh, to be eligible to participate in that DAO, uh, where you could actually earn uh, sort of tokens, like sort of Avada tokens for being online with your nodes. Because the thing that we want to stimulate is that as many people as possible having an Avado are online because once you're online, um, you can participate in like running a bridge. It's like the more uptime you have with your own nodes, the more valuable it is for you to be a participant in such a DAO that, for example, empowers such a bridge. Uh, so, and using a DAO, we could also uh, like reward people for actually staying online with their Avado. So, I mean, there's a lot of things on the horizon 
Um, so we're very uh, excited for what the future might bring because there are like so many possibilities. That's awesome. I, literally, it, it's it's such a fascinating uh, foresight you guys have on this. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's all, I mean, it's all kinds of software. So you have like these, these bridges, but you also have like validation on, on this layer too. So if you look at, uh, at Matic, at Polygon, for example, they also require validators. So uh, like you are validating on Ethereum, you can also like validate on, on Polygon, for example. So you could just apply to be a validator there. Uh, and again, this just requires you to run some piece of software, uh, but it also requires you uh, to maintain that software, to update it. And that's all like the services we provide in our platform. So you just like click, you deposit your stake and you're, uh, and you're good to go. What's the, uh, just, just out of curiosity, let's say I max this thing out. What's the most bandwidth this thing is pulling? Well, yeah, it's hard, hard to say, but uh, yeah, it really depends on, on, so if you're like, if you're, Synchronizing the chain from the start, yes, because that's sort of the, the decentralized uh, ethos that you sort of spin up, like an Ethereum node or a Bitcoin node or whatever, an avalanche node, that you start from Genesis and you sort of pull in all that data. So, like like Ben explained, the Ethereum chain is currently like at one terabyte. So that means you're looking at downloading one terabyte of data up sort of upfront or in the beginning. But once that is done. Like it drops down because the only thing you then need to do is like catch up with the chain. So you have to download each block as it comes um, and do some like peer to peer traffic. But it's not really noticeable. Um, so on any, like if you just have broadband, like like most users that's, that are uh, into this technology, uh, it shouldn't be a problem. So we, we rarely have people that start complaining about bandwidth problems and so forth. Um, and me, for example, at home, so my router and like most of the routers, they also support um, sort of prioritization of, of traffic. So that means you can sort of have the Avado box, like use all your spare bandwidth. But if you're like go online and you start watching Netflix or anything, or like five people start streaming your house, <laughs> sort of the bandwidth of the Avado will be sort of uh, pinched down until uh, they get what it's need, uh, what it needs. Sort of. um, so yeah, there are like all ways to, to go around uh, bandwidth problems. Yeah, I want to loop back to some of like the early Ethereum days. I, I, there's <laughs> got to be fun slash hilarious stories or something there. So I, I want to hear some of those. Yeah, maybe. I... Or maybe it wasn't that fun or hilarious, but I'm sure there was some cool stuff that like was kind of weird or like that I wouldn't know about yet. Yeah, so one of the, one of the experiments, for example, in the city of Antwerp was we had like uh, we call it the kitten box. So we actually built like a physical wooden box out of a, it was like an old wine crate or something. I don't remember what it was. And then we sort of motorized it. So we had like a lid that could open automatically when, <laughs> when, we, uh, when we wanted it to. Um, and then we had like a small display that we, so we were like, we were like hacking with hardware. And one of the components that was in there was actually a Raspberry Pi, which was then running like the, the version back then from Ethereum. So we were still able to, quickly spin up like and then synchronize its whole Ethereum chain on a Raspberry Pi. So where were the, those days? Um, but as we made a smart contract and we wanted to make like a concept of a club. And so like the kitten club was a club where, so you could become member. So there was like one seat member that started the club and you could invite somebody else. And if that person invited somebody else, then that group of three people could go to that kitten box and with their phone, with their app, 
like sign some transaction that they could actually open the box. And then when the box opened, there was some like some candy in there that they could have. So, but, so the idea was that we sort of tried to stimulate people to like form groups and form coalitions so they could like earn more. And so that manifestation was that <laughs> to uh, like sort of open that box. It was really <laughs> hilarious. So you have to imagine like an open office floor with all like public servants. So they're like busy with, uh, with all boring stuff. And then all of a sudden we come like rolling in this, this strange box and we start explaining how oh, you should make alliances here and, and this and that. It was a pretty hilarious uh, back in the day. This was fun because it was sort of the first, one of the first experiments where you sort of create something that's like physical, that's sort of powered by blockchain because it literally all ran on, on Ethereum. And you must imagine that back in the days we were actually just doing transactions. So imagine doing that now. So back in, in those days, like a transaction would cost like, one thousandth of a, of a dollar, uh, one uh, like a, a dollar cent or anything like that. Uh, so we just like did it on the main chain and just uh, let's do some transactions. Uh, we don't care. <laughs> and so did just a bunch of nerds show up? Like did a bunch of nerds just show up to like like try it or like was it like public public? Nerds. Like who showed up? Was it just you? Yeah, so it was uh, like that, that think tank I was in, so that group of four people, so we, we built it, and then we sort of presented it to, to the rest of the audience there, just as a social experiment on the work floor there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sort of that link. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Sort of that physical aspect, and like empowering something with a blockchain was like, uh, it's, it's all magic. <laughs> it is, so you know, it, 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 and, and when you're that, that early on, it's really, that's all you can do, is just go, what do I use this for? You know, what, what, what can I even make? Yeah, so imagine, so one of the things we, we encountered back then was that whole fiasco with the DAO. On, on Ethereum, you probably remember. Um, so, but, so the experiments I'm, ex I'm explaining now were like from before those days. So there was really absolutely no context what the technology could be used for and how people could sort of collaborate. So that, that DAO, like certainly in that buildup. Uh, it was really like, oh, it's, it's very clever to see that, that you're actually using this, this technique of smart contracts to like group people and like permissionlessly group funds together. And so, so these concepts, but it was really uh, quite the journey to, to explore these things. So a lot of experimentation uh, came with that, which was actually quite fun. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the main stories I, I can contribute sort of is always about uh, yeah hackings, <laughs> which are not not so much fun, but I think it's it's always interesting to see how the community reacts to those. So the, the, there was one hack in um, 2016. There was DevCon 2, so it's the, the developer conference of Ethereum. It was in Shanghai, and. Um, so all developers, all, all of the, the Ethereum Foundation, all, all people that had uh, anything to do with Ethereum were in Shanghai. And um, as you know, China has a very strict firewall. So it's just pretty hard to do anything on a computer that is not, uh, you know, the, or within the censorship uh, part of, of China. So th there was a, a hacker, maybe he timed it because people were in Shanghai, I, I'm not sure. He, um, he made a way that he bloated the, the blockchain with empty blocks. So there was empty blocks floating like a denial of service attack. It was uh, um, crowding, crowding the blockchain so that uh, no other transactions could, could really go through because these blocks were all flooding, flooding in there. And um, 
So it was really, uh, I, I saw this, this hectic moment in, in the whole community that they, they were, you know, we were in this big conference room, somebody was presenting, but nobody was paying attention to him because they were all on their phone, like one message came through and then people were going crazy about that. And um, so, but I think the, the interesting part is that the, so first of all, they, they found a way to, to uh, circumvent the firewall and still get on, onto the, the chain and then do stuff on chain and, 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 and change things on the core protocol. So that, that is one thing. And it was really interesting to see that they, they all grouped. So really the, 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 the best thing was that they were all together because they, they really could physically meet in a room like uh, the core developers and discuss what are we doing now? How can we stop this? What is the source of this? Why is this happening? You know, what do we need to change? And um, so it took them a day and a half to, to solve that. And I think if, if it would have happened outside of this conference, it would have been much more because of decentralization, to be honest, because then it would be in a, in a different place. It, the coordination would be much tougher. You know, so they were sitting at, at a computer. I could look at, or well, I, they could look at, at the other uh, person's computer and and help each other, and uh, that's how they they overcome this, uh, overcame this uh, quite quite fast, to be honest. You know, it it wasn't really a dent in the. So maybe nobody really notices it now, but it was back then. It was huge. It was a real problem uh, for a few days at least. You know. And, um, so Ethereum was down, or it was just kind of slow. No, it was totally slow. It was just not not usable at all. You know, it it uh, really didn't didn't work at all. It's it's like today. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> today it's just expensive. It's just very expensive. Exactly. Yeah, it still works, but it's just very expensive. I guess that's something. Yeah. Also, something heartwarming that I found. Uh, it seems like in our the previous project we that we did um, together. Um, so we did a token sale back in like uh, in late 2016. So uh, really before that, that first uh, bull run that took off for for Ethereum. Um, and at a certain point, so you had the the parity hack, yeah? so where like there was some sort of a bug, like a sort of configuration bug in the multi-sig. And there were like a couple of projects that were affected and basically got all their funding stolen amongst, amongst these projects was our project. Um, but the, yeah, the nice thing then to see was that all, so like the, the, even though it was then decentralized, the amount of coordination and like in the speed that it, it went on, because like there were so many people like white hat hackers um, that really wanted to fix that problem because a lot of people are, of course, like into that blockchain and have like uh, they're sort of invested in that. So they, they want to make sure that it's, that it succeeds. Uh, it was really heartwarming to see how much support we got back then from that whole community because they immediately went out. They, they looked at logs and like pulled like uh, sort of other contracts that were based on the same code. And then they applied the hack to, to safeguard those funds. And then like after a week or two, they sort of set up a whole system that they could like refund all these projects. So they really, made sure that I think back then there was like uh, around 100,000 either so that got stolen, I think, in total or even more. 150,000 got stolen, but um, then, so you have to you have to um, keep in mind this wallet that we used was a multi-sig wallet. So it needs uh, three or it has five signatures. And for every transaction you want to do, you need three signatures. So it, otherwise it wouldn't work. So this hacker found a way to put the signatures to zero. It was like a, a, more of, of a development um, uh, solution that they put in when they created this so that they could sort of 
test on it and and do stuff and they left it in there somehow so that there was uh, some some part of the code was just left in there and nobody notices it there was more than 500 projects like real big projects gnosis uh, status whatever you know in our project we all use this this wallet because it was for parity and parity is um, you know from the, the co-founder of ethereum and everybody trusted that this was the best technology at this point so, um, but then, then one day, this hacker found found a way to put the, the signatures to to zero, and um, so the, the it was actually yeah uh, I found or I, I realized that we got hacked because I, I sort of looked at our our account and it was like there was only breadcrumbs in there like zero point zero zero five whatever ETH uh, was left and everything else was gone. It was one transaction that went out forty four thousand ETH went went out from our wallet back then. Um, and so, so I thought, ooh, so our project, so three people colluded and, you know, they ran off with the money, but, um, I, I knew them so well that I couldn't believe that. So, um, so I, I wasn't panic. I, I really reached out and then to the community and said, you know, I think we got hacked. I mean, this is really crazy. Our, our wallet is, is, uh, everything is gone. And then, uh, so I remember the, the first response, it was a, it was a group on Skype that was around, um, the, the, uh, my, ETH, my ether wallet was back then. It's now called my crypto, um, uh, where they always were concerned about hacks and, and supported and, and, uh, informed the community about, um, any scams and so on. So I, I went to this community and said, I think we got hacked and showed them the, the address and everything. And the first, uh, um, uh, reaction was, what is your, um, COA? And I'm like, what does that mean? You, you're, um, no, you're not even COA. What is your, uh, yeah, call to action or something he said, you know, but only in, in abbreviation. I wasn't panic. I was like, yeah, I'm panicking. <laughs> you know, that was my reaction. So it was really, really crazy. And then as, as Stefan said, so this community then that I reached out to, they, there's some white hat hackers was in there. Luckily, and um, they looked at it and they found that this vulnerability really quick, actually, after they, they knew what they had to search for. So what they did was since 500 wallets are using this technology with more than $200 million of value back then, you know, today it would be whatever billions. Um, they hacked all of them so that, that the hacker wouldn't do it himself. So they were trying to, to be faster than, than the hacker and collected all the money from these wallets. Now they couldn't communicate it because otherwise other people would get to the same thought and then would also hack them. <laughs> so the, the whole community was going crazy. They're like, we got hacked, we got hacked, and we got hacked as well. And they couldn't say that, that uh, you know, it's us, we, we're doing this for the good. And uh, who would believe them anyways, you know? So um, it was really crazy. And then after uh, a day and a half, after they, they sort of drained all the all the wallets that they could find, um, they they announced that they they did that, you know. And it was also legally, it's, it's totally um, not not clear if if they did something illegal now or legal or. Whatever. <laughs> um, and this, these people were all again um, by coincidence. Most of them were in Barcelona, based um, uh, at that point. They were also a group gathering. Um, and they, they, they locked themselves in for two weeks. I mean, it sounds funny, like, they, yeah, after two weeks, they, uh, they found a solution and transferred the money back. In the two weeks, they had $200 million of value in cryptocurrency 
on their accounts, on their, on their computers. So they locked themselves in and they had like a, a baseball bat next to the door. And then if, if anybody was ringing, they, they were really cautious about that. They, they were really <laughs> and, and crazy paranoid uh, at that moment. And so they reached out to the community, said, we have the money, but we cannot transfer it back because there is no secure way, no secure wallet. And we cannot transfer it to one address that one person owns because then, you know, there's no trust in that. So they, they needed to transfer it to wallets that have the same setup as before with the same signatures so that you could um, verify that, that people really would get the money back that it belonged to. So it took them about two weeks. But this was a great community effort. You know, they, they created a new wallet from, from scratch almost and, um, and built this very, very secure new uh, multisig wallet and uh, deployed that and the community audited it and then they transferred the money back. And so the money was, was all transferred back. Every, every project was happy besides us because we were really hacked by the hacker. So <laughs> it was gone, you know, but um, the, the community was saved kind of by, by these whitehead hackers and that's... That's pretty amazing that they, they had this money and didn't uh, just say, hey, guys, I'm, I'm going to a Caribbean island and the Caribbean island and, you know, see you. No, they, they really transferred it back and uh, really believe that, that, that that's true. And, and, you know, that really speaks to what this new Web3 community is like is because it is open. It is sharing. You know, I've worked in a number of industries and, and the story you tell is extraordinary but it's not out of the ordinary for some of the things that happen in and around blockchain. I think that's, um, you know, a, a fabulous way for us to kind of uh, thank you guys for your time. Thank you. Thank you for the story. And um, more than anything else, like, please, uh, last parting words of how do people find uh, Avado? What should they buy? And is there any coupon codes you want to share? <laughs> well, we didn't prepare any coupon codes, but we have, uh, so our website is ava.do, ava.do. So Avado, our name, just a dot between the, the Ava and the Do. Um, you can find us on Twitter as well with Avado. Um, yeah, reach out to us, contact us. This is the website. You can see it right now. Um, anything else to add from your side? Wait, which one should they buy? They should not buy the least expensive one, right? They want at least the i7. Either the Which one do they want to buy? Yeah, so if you're if you're like staking Ethereum, if that's your only goal, um, I think the uh, the i7 uh, 232s, like the build part, uh, should set you up for like being able to participate for the next two years and a half at least. Uh, if you want to also stake something else, like if you want to stake uh, Avalanche, for example, you also have to like have a full copy of the Avalanche blockchain or or Quotum uh, likewise. And then you'd better go with the, the 432. So the difference is that the, the latter one has four terabytes of, uh, of storage, uh, as where the other one has two terabytes of storage. So those would be the options. So if you're like a single staker, go for the middle one. If you want to stake on multiple chains, go uh, for the right one. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for coming by, guys. It was super fun hearing some of the stories, and you're, you're up to some really cool stuff. So thanks. Yeah, thank All you. All right, guys. For having us. Yeah, thanks for having Perfect. Me. It was a lot of fun. Okay. Bye bye. Have a good day. Bye bye. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbach, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner, with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. 
YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.